You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Good morning, good morning, good Saturday morning out there, September the 19th, you guys, we are on, we're more than halfway through this month, oh my goodness, we got about a week and a half to go, I hope things, you are on, still on track despite all the things going on in this world, and I just pause for a moment to honor uh, 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 Supreme Court Justice Ruth Ginsburg and the work that she did for women and, and so many others, just really, really pause to honor her life. Uh, and then I also want to share this quote with you before we introduce today's phenomenal guest, and the quote is by Henry Ford, and that's the whole secret of a successful life is to find out what is one's destiny to do and then do it, and she did that, and I hope that all of our listeners, that you are doing that, and our, our guest, actually, the theme, and I didn't connect it to the quote um kind of is, is on in that same spirit. Again, the whole secret of a successful life is to find out what is one's destiny to do and then to do it. And that's, that's all, often the thing that you love the most as well. So, again, I want to welcome you to our Saturday, September the 19th, 2020 show. Thank you for joining us. For our loyal listeners, 16 years been on on the air, and you've been with us from day one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf. I just want to let you know that you are listening to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf. But before I introduce our guest, I have to ask you guys, I keep asking you how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Are you one of those people, you know, Columbo, they tell you who did it, then you got to figure out why why they did what they did. There's some other, Monk is another, uh, it doesn't come on, the reruns come on. But those are those mystery shows or mystery book you, or a movie, it's a mystery, and you're trying to figure out who, who did it. How often do you get it right? Can you figure it out before it's revealed on a TV show, the movie, or in the book? If you love a good mystery, there's some tight, cliff turning twists in this book. I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. But even more, when you get a copy of Love Pour Over Me, you will also get a book that explores a complicated father-son relationship. There is a beautiful, beautiful relationship between Raymond and Brenda, but the complication he has with his father affects their relationship. And there's this these five friends, Raymond and four of his friends, they meet at college, they come from all different parts of the world, but this friendship lasts. It's something I rarely see people celebrate, a friendship between a bond with four or more male friends. If you value friendship and relationships and you like a good mystery, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. It's in ebook or print format. You can get a copy today. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Stephen Howard. Stephen develops leadership development curriculum. He has 38 years of international senior sales corporate marketing and leadership experience 38 years y'all he has delivered leadership training programs in australia canada africa the united states and europe 
He's the author of several books, including Better Decisions, Better Thinking, Better Outcomes, How to Go from Mindful to Mindful, like F-U-L-L, mind, my mind is full, to Mindful, M-I-D-F-U-L, Leadership. Eight Keys to Becoming a Great Leadership Leader with Leadership Lessons and Tips from Gibbs, Yoda, and Captain Jack Sparrow. That's an interesting title. Corporate Image Management, a Marketing Discipline, Powerful Marketing Minutes, 50 Ways to Develop Market Leadership, and the best of the Monday Morning Marketing Memo. Please visit Stephen online at, and I'll spell it, it's it's like CalentLeadership.com, C-A-L-I-E-N-T. E-L-E-A-D-E-R-S-H-I-P.com, C-A-L-I-E-N-T-E-L-E-A-D-E-R-S-H-I-P.com. We are absolutely honored to have Stephen join us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Stephen. Thank you, Denise. Good morning to you. Good morning to your listeners. Good to have you, especially at the, you know, leadership is something that is always Valuable, and you, you can have bad leaders that can just ruin so many things and take take us so far back. And good leaders just keep helping us to advance, and they also bring out the best in us. But before we get to talking about leadership in your books, I, these are the first few questions I ask every guest, so that our listeners can get a little backstory on our guests before we go into the questions. So, can you tell off the shelf listeners, Stephen, where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Well, I had a fairly unique uh, childhood. I grew up in Las Vegas um, and right through from elementary school through to high school and even university. So it was a bit different. Uh, grew up fast, grew up young in, in the uh, city that never sleeps. And so it was Las a bit different. Las Vegas. And you, be, being <laughs> a, a leader, I have to ask you, did you have siblings Are you the and are you the oldest? I'm the oldest. I've got uh, two younger brothers. Um uh, neither of which went into the corporate world. They both created their own companies, and they're both in the construction industry. I'm curious if that is that with some of the, you know, they say that oldest child has is strong leadership skills because their parents often encourage them. To, makes that a good example for your younger brother and sister and, and, and help your brother and your sister. And so it's kind of even when you're like, real young, it gets started out then. So, yeah, so your it does. Brothers, and often we're often often we're told, "Go tell your brothers do this. Go tell them to be sort of the messenger for our parents." Sometimes. Yes. So your your brothers went into business, and good for them. But as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did you dream of being? Oh, I'm so embarrassed to admit this today, Denise. I literally, and I told people in my teenage years, I was going to become a United States senator. I, I love politics. I, uh, yeah, I love politics. I even majored in political science in college. I thought I was going to make you know make a difference, and now I just I laugh at that. I just look at the corruption in Washington D.C. I have you know the the lack of leadership in Congress, and I I just shake my head and think how could I ever have wanted to join that cesspool? But, yeah, um, you know what? Because I think a lot of people think they don't think it's the way it is. The way it is, it's just it's just been the it's been going. That machine's been moving. For so long, the way it has to come in and yeah. think it would take a, a, a at least a, a hundred different people to go in there to, to bring some change about. But yeah, you, you had good intentions. So you've written several I books. You've written you've yeah, written, written several. A, the the twenty first book came out last month. 
Wow. Congratulations. Now, so you did, you. you went from wanting to be a senator, going into corporate America. Who or what inspired you to pursue writing 21 books? Well, in some ways, and I kind of laughed as I listened to your lovely description of, of, of what is it, Love Pour, Love Pour Over, is um, my father was a mystery writer. He was a short story writer. He also wrote, he yeah. wrote 20 books, which is which is probably one reason I've written 21. Um, he was um, he got the first lifetime achievement award from the Mystery Writers of America, and so he inspired me to write. But he wrote fiction, and I've only written nonfiction. So we we went in different directions. Wow! Oh my goodness, your father was a writer. Look at you! So 38 yeah. years of leadership and marketing experience—that is impressive. What what did you do in the corporate world? Like, were you like a headed up marketing for a, a large corporation? If you could just give us a little backstory on that, and what attracted you sure. to specifically leadership and marketing? Well, I, I was recruited by Texas Instruments out of college, and after three years in Dallas, they sent me to Singapore to start up the marketing operations for TI all, all across Asia Pacific, and. Uh, then three years later, I joined Time Magazine. I was the regional director. I ran Time Magazine sales operations from Brunei oh. in the east to Pakistan in the west. Um, I spent one year doing strategic marketing for Air Lanka, which was the at that time the name of the national airline of Sri Lanka. But one of our three planes blew up on the tarmac, um, and I was supposed to be on that plane the next night uh, going to London. But you know there was a civil war going up on uh, going on at the time, and the rebels blew up one of the planes. So I decided banking would be a little safer industry, and I joined Citibank as a vice president of marketing uh, in Singapore. So uh, the strong marketing and, and um, corporate background, and at Citibank I had 23 people reporting to me, and I think that's probably where I, I got serious about understanding what leadership is all about. Wow, that's impressive. What a what a bio. Oh, my goodness. Can you, So you've definitely seen... You've definitely, from banking the time to to uh, the Texas Instruments, you've definitely seen technology to uh, journalism or media to banking. You've seen you've seen your share of people leading or 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 in leadership positions, I should say. Can you share a few traits of effective leaders? And I, and before you do, I pause because I think a lot of times we think a leader, especially years decades ago, was more like a military uh, general where you just got people to do things. A leader, you know, says right. we're, gonna, we're going to uh, increase our sales by 10% and you, each person needs to get this many new sales, or we're going to build something a certain way, and you just get people to do it. If you have to bark at them, you bark at them. If you threaten them, you threaten them, but you just get them to do it. So that's what a lot of times we see a leader they just make they make get people to do things. But what are what are the real true if you can share a few real true traits of effective leaders? Okay, thank you. The, the, and what you're describing there is what we call the old control and command type leadership, and it doesn't work in today's world. It still works in the military. It probably works in the police force and, and other a few other kind of industries like that. But really today, first of all, I believe Denise, uh, great leadership is an art. It's the art of achieving progress through the involvement and actions of others. So you've got to get people involved. And that's why great leaders are, are good at leading people and leading for results. Where good leaders, good leaders are usually good in one of those two. Good leaders are good at leading for results 
or good leaders are very, very humanistic, very good at leading people, but they don't achieve the results. And so the differentiation is that a great leader does both. Ah, gets results, and you, you, you're making an impact, a positive impact on the, on the people in your lives. Do they have? Do you have to have strong communication skills to be a good leader? So let's say somebody is. They they're very good at what they do. They're specialists in in their area, whether it's technology, whether it's medicine, whether it's education, et cetera. But they really don't they they don't see themselves as a good communicator. They're more uh, they don't talk a lot, or they feel uncomfortable speaking and speaking at meetings, and et cetera. Could that person still be an effective leader? Probably not. In honesty, I think communication. <clears throat> Communication is the number one skill. In fact, in some ways, communication is the only skill of a leader. Everything else is a methodology. But a great commu- a, a great leader has to motivate people. And it's not just in meetings. It could be one-on-one with people. And a lot of great leadership is done, you know, talking with one individual or maybe two or three people in a small team. So I'm not talking about corporate leaders. I'm talking about a great leader can be a team leader. It could be a leader of, of a small department or small division in an organization. So one of the things I teach leaders is that, you know, we all have two ears and one mouth, and a great leader uses them in that proportion. A great leader listens twice as much as they talk. You, you don't learn a lot when you're talking. Uh, you learn when you listen to other people. You have to – questioning is a great leadership skill, asking the right questions, asking great follow-up questions, being open so that people will share with you. One of my favorite quotes uh, is that, a, you know, a, a, a leader who does not listen – will soon have people who do not participate. Uh, so you've got to be a, a, a great le- a listener to be a great leader. You've got to ask great questions. And you have to be able to give actionable feedback to people, relevant and actionable feedback that they will put into action. So I think communication is, is at the heart of leadership. You know why? Because I've seen, I've seen in corporations I've worked, and I'm sure our listeners have as well, you see somebody get promoted into a position because of their expertise, and they may or may not have good people management uh, skills. That, that before we go into the Monday morning marketing memo, do companies, do you think they prepare and train new leaders adequately? I, I, I again, think some companies uh, put you in that position because somebody's an expert at doing something. Do you think that no, leaders – No, not at all. Not at all. Companies throw them into the deep end of the pool. Company typical conversation is you get called in on Thursday and said, you know, congratulations, Denise. You're going to be the supervisor of this team on Monday. Uh, if you have any questions, let me know, but you'll do great. And that, that's your entire brief. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and they don't train people. And that's one of the reasons. Research shows that uh, 60 to 70% of all new supervisors, first-time supervisors, first-time managers, first-time leaders, they fail to make that transition from what you describe, what we call individual contributor, somebody who's a subject matter expert, very good in their field, and now has to lead people. They set 60 to 70% of them fail to make that transition because they're not well-trained, and that's one of the things I do, and I'm about to offer an online training program to people uh, so they can get this, they can get this themselves because the other big problem, particularly in corporate America, our, our, in corporate America, so many people are at work for small and medium-sized enterprises who can't afford training, or they don't have enough people to put a classroom training session together, you know, unlike the big multinationals, the big Fortune 500. And so people in, the, in these organizations get promoted into leadership and get no training at all. And 
So what I've done is put together an eight-part online training program that launches uh, sometime in the next few weeks. It'll be launched by early October, and people will be able to take it self-paced and learn the essential leadership skills that they need to be a great leader, to be a great supervisor, a great manager. And how long is that course you said again? It's online. Is that a one-on-one virtual training with you? Is that a group training? Is that a do-it-at-your-own-pace type of training? It's, it's it's eight video modules, each will be 60 to 75 minutes, uh, with a workbook, with assignments, and, and the interaction part is people can send me their assignments, um, and for instance, one assignment is to give feedback to somebody. So you, you plan your feedback discussion, you send it to me, uh, and within 72 hours, I will reply to it individually, myself. I'll look at each and every one of them. I'll bring my 38 years of experience to them. And then everyone will participate in a group monthly coaching call um, and for two years. So you can complete, let's say you complete the program in eight weeks, you're still going to get two years full uh, worth of uh, monthly coaching calls. And I'm going to limit those groups to around 30 people. So once I have 30 participants or say 35, I'll start another group because I want the interaction. I want people to get value out of this program. Now, that sounds like something good. Two more years to keep learning with real-time experiences and bringing them to the whole group and everybody can share tips and best practices and insights. That's a a good win right there. Now, before we talk about your latest book, can you tell us about the best of the Monday morning marketing memo? I've never heard that term before. Can you just give us a little insight on that? Well, I was at the forefront of the Internet when I lived in Singapore, and uh, I created one of the first online electronic newsletters in the world, Um, and it was called the Monday Morning Marketing Memo. And every Monday, again, I was a marketing consultant at the time before I got into leadership. Every Monday, I would write something about marketing, about customer retention, about branding, um, customer service, whatever. And... I'd send it out, and that list grew over to over uh, 3,000 people subscribing to it. I mean, we're talking now in the um, early or, um, let's see, late 1980s, I guess, early 1990s. Uh, It's almost 30 years ago. And um, the – so what I did is I took these. I I wrote like 270 of them um, before I stopped doing it when I switched over to leadership. I took the top, I think, 55 of them, and I published a book called the best of the Monday morning marketing memo. And so that, 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 that's an opportunity for people to, you know, it has, it has topics on um, customer service, customer retention, marketing, branding, pricing, you know, all, all your basic marketing subjects. Oh, okay. Okay. Marketing. And, and in what ways with the internet, you came in late eighties, early nineties. I know, I think I started getting on the internet in the late nineties. It's changed. I mean, exponentially since then. In what ways do you see marketing changing with the rapid pace of change today due to technology? How do you see marketing changing over the next six months? And before you answer, I just for our listeners, I can remember a time when a press release got a lot of traction. It doesn't get what it used to get. How do you see marketing changing over the next six months? 
Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think it, well, a lot of it will depend partly on how long the, the shutdown, lockdowns continue. Um, I think because a lot of it, obviously, today's world, a lot of the marketing is to drive people to online purchases or, or different ways of purchasing, a, you know, takeout from restaurants instead of, you know, coming to our restaurant, spending two or three hours and making a wonderful in-dining in experience. Um, I think the, I think one thing about marketing never changes, and, and one of the things I talked about in the Monday Morning Marketing Memo a lot was what I call TLC of marketing, and that doesn't mean tender, loving care. It means think like a customer, TLC, think like customers. And so as long as you can think like a customer, if you can get into the customer's head, if you can understand why a customer will be interested in your product or your brand over something else or what they're looking for, what is their problem they're trying to solve, then you can create a marketing campaign or a marketing product. Uh, and you know, and that's exactly what I've done with my online training program. There, there's a need right now. That there's going to be no classroom training for the next 18 to 24 months or very limited amount of classroom training. So the program I just described to you not only will benefit individuals, but I will, I will give, sell it to corporations and give them a discount if they, um, you know, put five or more people, uh, buy five or more licenses to my program. So that's what I'm talking about. Thinking like I understand what corporations need. I can think like the corporation, think like their cousin. They need to keep training their people. They can't do classroom training. That's the problem. What's the solution? An interactive online training program that isn't just a bunch of videos, but interaction with um, with the workbook, interaction with me on their assignments, and the monthly group coaching calls. That's a solution. That's that's how things will change. You've got to really understand how to how to solve people's problems using digital technology. Okay. Now introduce us to better decisions, better thinking, better outcomes. What are some of the topics that you cover in the book? Well, the main part of that book is and, and is is all about how leaders get under stress, make very bad decisions, and it impacts their bottom lines. and And it talks about how our brain operates, uh, how our brain makes decisions. Um, you know, when we get under stress, the brain goes into what we call binary decision mode, where it only looks for two options. It tries to tries to narrow our choices to yes or no, black or white, one or two, uh, this or that. And that's often not an optimal decision, which is why, particularly in the workplace, we find so many times leaders make decisions, and then weeks or months later, they have to course correct because they didn't think of all the options. They didn't think of all the, all the hurdles up front. Um, but in that book, one of my favorite parts of that book, I've got a chapter on brain myths because there's so many myths about the brain. And so I kind of I, I did a lot of research into what these brain myths are and uh, and show people uh, how, how neuroscience is have changed through technology and research, change our understanding of the brain. So that's, that's a good part of the book. Ah, and then you can really see how the next question may connect to your decisions. So if you can tell us about the connection between leadership and mindfulness, and when you say mindfulness, what exactly do you mean? I think mindfulness is just being present. I mean, my, and again, that's kind of one of the myths I talk about it in the book as well. Mindfulness has nothing to do with yoga. You don't have to become a Buddhist. You don't have to go on a 10-day silent retreat to become mindful. Mindful simply means having a purposeful pause. It may mean using purposeful breathing, slowing your breathing down. But So, for instance, on a leadership standpoint, leaders are so often asked to make quick, rapid decisions. And that's where they make bad decisions. So, Mindfulness for a leadership standpoint is stop, pause, think, ask some good clarifying questions. Take 10 or 15 minutes if you need to before you, particularly if it's an important project, 
make that decision. Go outside and get some fresh air. Become mindful. Think about Take everything off your mind that you're thinking about. Everything that's going on in your life and only focus on this particular problem, on the potential solutions for this particular problem. That may take 15 minutes. It may take two hours. Whatever it takes. That makes that will be a better decision than the snap judgment that you are likely to make if you don't become a mindful leader. Okay, I have to ask you this then. We talk about trusting your gut. You hear that often. And people will say, I should have trusted my gut. I should have went with my gut instinct. Sure. How does that compare? Uh, if, you, if you compare that to um, mindfulness, Mindfulness, you're really thinking it through. You're not going with the first um, thought. that you're not, you're not trying to take the time to think it. The first thought or emotion around something that comes up, that's what you go with. Is at, and, the, and the, your study about the brain, is it really true? I've, I've heard this all my life. Go with your first instinct. Trust your gut. If you don't, you'll regret it. Your study of the brain, is well, that actually factual? It is, but what you have to do, and this is where the mindfulness part comes in, you've got to pause long enough to understand what your gut is telling you. And so making a snap decision doesn't necessarily correlate with trusting your gut. Because, uh, so for instance, we've all, we've all, every one of us has said in our life, I was so mad I couldn't think straight, and we made a decision. Well, that, that's not trusting our gut. We're, that, we're getting emotionally hijacked. When we get so angry about something like that or so emotional, this is where we need to pause, become mindful. And so it's not only, not only is our, when we're mindful are we thinking what's going in our brain, what are our thoughts, but also part of mindfulness is understanding what is our body telling us. I mean, if, if our palms are sweating, we're nervous or we, we may be anxious about this decision. We may not be in the right place mentally, emotionally placed to make that decision. If our gut is telling us something. So mindfulness is is understanding these body sensations as well as our thoughts. And that's what mind and that's why we'll make better decisions if we can get into a more mindful state. And that's both in leadership and in our personal lives. This applies in our personal lives as well. Yeah, you know what, listening to you I can tell even if you're parenting, if you're in a relationship with another adult, you could see how these we all impact each other. It's not just somebody leading the organization who does that, but each of us, each person we come in contact with, it, just to take that time. Cause, so you can't he, really hear from your gut, I guess, clearly, if you're stressed. Is no, your, has your no. Reach, okay, no, you can't. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Denise. Sorry, but the other thing here is also the way you react. For instance, I've got a, a, a very good friend. She has a teenage son. Well, we have to understand that the teenage brain is not fully developed, um, and it doesn't fully develop until we're about 22 or 23. This is why teenagers make very bad decisions or they make emotional decisions instead of rational decisions. And she was upset with her son recently about her son waiting till late at night to do homework. He'd spent, you know, the early part of the evening, you know, chatting with friends, doing whatever teenage boys do. And she was upset about that. And I talked to her the next day about it. And, and I said, well, what is it? You have to understand, remember, his brain isn't fully formed. You have to be more, more calm with that. You have to kind of explain to him the rational reason why he will do his homework better 
earlier in the night when his brain is more fresh rather than just arguing and yelling at him because he's waited till 11 o'clock to start doing schoolwork. So that's what, that's, so that's a purposeful pause. You have to know, you have to understand yourself, but you have to pause sometimes and think about what is the other person going through? What, what is their mental state? What is their emotional state? Or in this case, what is their brain state as a teenager? Um, understand that so you can help them uh, make better decisions. And that's you know what, and it's it's. I'm listening to you. You said leadership is an art at the start of the show. I would agree, and it's something. I think we all can be leaders, but it does take a conscious decision, an intent, a lot of clear intention to do that. Because it sounds like work. And a lot of times you think <laughs> of a leader, you think somebody's getting all these perks. And, uh, you know, they, they, they've got, if they're a CEO of a major corporation, they might have their own personal driver. They can get on the, the helicopter, the private plane. But there is so much that comes with being being a leader. Now, how do both sides of the brain affect decision-making? For the, for those of us, you know, well, I think about people who, whose lives get derailed or they make bad decisions. It's, it's something, yeah. when they get emotional, they just, Boom, make a decision. How do both sides of the brain affect decision-making? Well, it, it, it's not just both sides, but it's also the different components of the brain, Denise. So, for instance, the, the amygdala, which is at the back of our brain, is our emotional control center. And it reacts faster than the prefrontal cortex, which is at the front of our brain. So this is where we get emotional hijacked. This is where we get upset and we make those bad decisions. And by the way, we, we often talk about negative emotions. The same thing's true about positive emotion. Sometimes you're so happy. I mean, this is how casinos in Las Vegas keep growing. You know, you're on a winning streak at the card table and you're winning, 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 and you're excited, you're ecstatic, and you're happy. And you're not smart enough to walk away with your winnings. You think, I can, I can keep winning. I can keep winning. I'm on a hot streak. And so that emotional thing takes over where our, if our rational brain would be there, our rational brain would say, hey, wait a second. You're up $2,000. Why don't you walk away now and pocket the profit? That would be the smart thing to do. But no, our emotional brain tells us we're on a hot streak. So our emotions are both positive and negative, and they, in fact, impact our decision-making. And that, quite frankly, is one of the reasons I titled the book the way I did I, Often people say, you know, the title is Better Decisions, Better Thinking, Better Outcomes. People often say, shouldn't it be better thinking first? If you do better thinking, you'll you'll have better decisions, and then you'll get better outcomes. And I said, and this is the whole premise of the book. No, the first decision you have to make is not to get emotionally hijacked. The first decision you have to make is to become mindful and focus on the problem at hand so you don't fall into the binary decision trap. So a better decision up front about the way you think will lead to better thinking, and that will lead to better outcomes. Uh, and this is this is where the value of a book like yours uh, uh, comes in. Can you can you offer off the shelf listeners in this busy world that's changing at a very fast pace? Can you offer our listeners tips on how to practice mindfulness? We've talked a little bit about it, but sure. what are some like easy things they could start doing, especially people who are like, I don't have time to do much uh, to help sure. practice mindfulness. Sure. I mean, the, here's a very – everyone can do it. And uh, these are the, the things I'm going to talk about here are things that can you can do um, even, at the, uh, even at the office in the workplace as well. So, for instance, here's the easiest thing to do. Take your beverage, take your cup of coffee, or if you're eating something, 
And like right now, I've got a cup of coffee in my hand, and I just smell it. Big inhale, deep breath. And I can, I've got a cinnamon stick in my coffee. All right, now, just that aroma. And if I just focus on that aroma for 5, 10, 15 seconds, it's automatically making my brain concentrate only on that aroma and not on anything else that might be on my desk, you know, thinking about an email I have to send. Now I'm, now I'm becoming present, and now I'm totally focused on our conversation with you, Denise. And this is the kind of thing I did before, before our conversation. So, I'm, so I don't have those things about emails or, you know, got to go grocery shop this afternoon, make sure you put this on the grocery list or anything like that, to be perfectly fully focused. So that's a, that's a really easy one. But another technique, and this is something the Navy SEALs do, and it's called box breathing. And, and none of us have a more stressful life than a Navy SEAL. And they do it for five minutes before they go into a stressful situation. I do it for two or three minutes. They do it for a count of five. I'll do it for a count of eight to 12. But all it is, and this is what I mean by the count, is you breathe in deeply. And I'll do it and you can hear it. And you're breathing in from your diaphragm. And you breathe in for a count of five or a count of eight. And now you hold it for a count, say in my case, a count of eight. And then a big exhale. When you exhale, you go and exhale beyond your normal ex- exhalation and, and empty your lungs, and then hold that exhale for eight seconds. And you do this. Now, I do this in an airport. You know, as you know, traveling is not, is, is not fun anymore. Traveling is highly stressful. So when, if I'm uh, about to board an, an airplane, I'll do this while I'm standing in line while my group member is being called. And I'll just breathe in. I'll look at the tarmac, look at the planes moving or the people on the tarmac, just watch what they're doing. I'll just breathe in, hold it, exhale, Hold it, and nobody knows what I'm doing, and I can do it right. The person in front of me doesn't know what I'm doing. The person, you know, three feet away or six feet away in today's world, they don't know what I'm doing. They just see me looking out there at the at the tarmac. So that's another easy thing to do. And I'll give you one more, and this is particularly if you're stressed. And if you're listening, I I would encourage you to do this with me right now. Is just take your fists and clench them as tight as you can for five seconds. And then I want you to throw them straight out at your computer or your radio, your iPad, whatever you want. Just throw them straight out so you've got five or ten fingers up, like like uh, two high fives. And then do it again. Okay. Clench them. Clench them and do it again. And you do this for about a minute. Clench for five seconds. Throw it out for five seconds. So you're going to do about six uh, total um, cycles if you want. And people say, I can't do that at work. And I say, yes, you can. Do it under the conference table if you're in a meeting. Do it in your desk if you're on a call. Just clench your fists, and this time throw them down towards the floor. Maybe not as dramatic as if you're throwing them out like right now, but just clench them. and You can feel the tension in your arms, the tension in your shoulders, sometimes the tension in your back, relaxing, releasing. These tensions, this is, again, what your body's talking to you. Tension in your body is your body telling you you're under stress. And unless it's a muscle pull, obviously, but you know you got these little knots in your shoulder or kinks in your neck or what. It's telling you you're stressed and that you need to take a mindful pause and go outside, get some sunlight, um, if, you know, get some fresh air. Five or ten minutes will be a, a remarkable way to reduce your stress and put you in a more mindful mood, more mindful mode of operating. Well, thank you for sharing those tips. That one you could even do at work. You know what? I was so upset once at work. I said, I, I have to get out. I got up and went for a walk. Yep. And when I came back, I felt so much better just getting outside, walking in nature, and I calmed myself down. But emotion can hijack us. Oh, my God, I can just think of how many people are in bad situations 
because their emotions went through the roof and they made a decision, and now they they years of regret for a, a quick emotional decision that they make. Yeah. Um, we're consuming so many, talking about leadership, decision-making, mindfulness. We're consuming so massive amounts of data each day when they're discussing the brain. How do we determine what's worth keeping and tossing out? <laughs> oh, um, well, that's for each of us to decide. Uh, I think one of the best things you can do if you know something's bothering, first, two things. First of all, get a lot in your mind is write it down because once you write it down, like a note, like a thing, a to-do list or whatever, just it, it's a great way of freeing up the working space in your brain because that's how we get this is how we get brain fatigue. We we have too many things in our mind. We're trying to juggle too many things and we overload our brain. And then the working memory in our brain doesn't have capacity to focus on the problem at hand. Uh, the sa- same thing works if you if you're frustrated or angry about something. It could be something. It could maybe maybe it's a person, but it could also be let's say you know the company has a new policy and you're you're unhappy with that uh, and it, you're really upset about that. Write down what what you're upset about. Write down why you're upset about it. Write down what can you do about it. And often it's, the word is nothing. It might be a single word answer. Just doing that gets it out of your system. Now, some people, you know, there's some techniques to say, you know, take that piece of paper and roll into a ball and throw it out. Other people say, take it outside and burn it. Uh, those are all good, te- you know, whatever works for you psychologically. Um, for me, I just tend to, I tend to write a lot of my negative thoughts down on a piece of paper and I just crunch it up and, and put it in my recycle bin. And um, and I figure those, those let, let the recycle uh, station uh, take care of those thoughts. I don't want those thoughts anymore. If I get them, get them out of my system. Interesting. Yeah, because you know what? A lot of times it's the same thing that's bothering you day to day to day. So just let it sure. go. That those those are. Um, I I want to ask you. Have to ask you this. Now you've worked with leaders around the world. Uh, again, I know right after the World War II, the U.S. had a lot of success. My corporate years working in uh, financial services. A lot of companies said, well, we'll create our leaders like military leaders, but they found that did not work. That just, it works in the military. It did not work in the civilian world. Uh, are leaders changing? I, I sometimes think our leaders are, are they more charismatic? Are they more charming? And we just, just get under the the wave of the charm and go along with it. Are they changing? I think they have changed these, and I and I, I agree with you. I think again, the control and command uh, from the 1970s up through the 1970s, of do it my way or the highway, that doesn't work. Again, outside maybe the military. Although I've talked to some military folks, and they say that that's changing even in the military to some extent. Uh, then we we did go to the charismatic leaders. We went to the Jack Welch of the GE. We went to the John Breeds at at um, Citibank, and 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 these kind of you know follow these kind of leaders. And and that was good. It was highly emotional and motivational. But again, that those were kind of the leaders who were very good at leading people, but they weren't really good at getting results. So they they created really happy environments, uh, but they they didn't uh, get the result. I think now, really great leaders are the ones who are empathetic, and particularly in today's uh, coronavirus world, you've got to be empathetic with your people. And the people I coach right now on a one-to-one basis, I tell them. You know, when you call your team members on, you know, you check on them every day or every other day, your number, your first question out of your mouth right now in today's world, September 2020, should always be, how is your family? 
How are your kids doing with, with distance learning? How is your spouse doing? Are, are, are both in just, you know, if you know by now you'll know enough whether both spouses are working from home or whatever. How are you both coping with working from home? Second, the second series of questions, how are you doing? What are you doing to cope? What are you doing to maintain your emotional balance? What are you doing to maintain your physical energy? Um, and then let's talk about business. Let's talk about work. And yes, that takes more. And the, 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 the old, you know, the American style of, of let's jump in the meeting, let's jump right to here's our agenda, blah, blah, blah. No, we need right now in today's world, a great leader will be empathetic with their people. They'll stop to understand what are their people struggling with. And um, and I rocked this talk. I had a coach, one of the people I was coaching, I, I did this with him. And I, he, I said, you know, how are you coping? He said, well, it's a, right now it's a bit of a struggle this morning. My kids are on distance learning and my wife has a conference call. All three of us are on the Internet right now. And I said, hey, does this happen every every week? Our calls are Thursday at 10 a.m. Does this happen every week? He said, yeah. I said, how about we move our session to 2 o'clock on Thursday? He says, well, I didn't want to inconvenience you. I said, well, I appreciate that. But listen, what's best for you? You're my customer. So, and he said, look, 3 o'clock would be better. My kids aren't doing distance learning anymore, so they're off the, they're off the Internet. My wife usually finishes all her work in the morning because she's going to be focusing on other stuff uh, that, that she's working on. 3 o'clock works. I said, fine. So we change our schedules to 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoons because I understood what he was going through, what his anxiety, what his anguish is all about. And I don't want to be coaching him when he's trying to tell the kids, be quiet in the background, or he wants to make sure his kids are actually doing the distance learning, that they're not sitting on their, their uh, electronic devices texting their friends or actually listening to the teacher. Because right at that point, that person has parental responsibilities, which are more important than his work responsibilities. And that's, leaders have to understand that and be flexible, be agile. Yes, you know what, and and I see that going on more in the corporate world. It's definitely changed since I entered the work world. But people, you know, leaders, you you ask first, how's your family? Make sure you take some time away. You take your lunch break, et cetera, et cetera. I, I hear more of that. Uh, just just step outside for a little while and and t- and remove yourself from work and take a vacation. I hear more leaders uh, encouraging people they. The, under them to do that. Now I have to ask you. We have a lot of uh, off, uh, on off the shelf books talk radio. We have a lot of listeners who themselves may have a product, particularly a book or another product or a small business. We've had small business owners on, and they're looking for a way. Particularly now with, I mean, small businesses are struggling. A lot of them right now um, with this COVID nineteen situation. But even marketing in itself. It's changed so much in the last 20 years, at least to me. Um, Can you offer any ways to develop for somebody who has a team over them market leadership? How do you, like, if if you're, and and I'm thinking now more on sales, how do you lead people in that area? Again, start with being empathetic, understanding what they're going through. Look, it's, it's a tougher time to make sales. It, 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 it's, it's harder to build relationships with potential customers um, remotely than, you know, if you call on them or, you know, bring them a cup of coffee, meet them in their office, you know, as we were doing 12 months ago. Um, so just to understand, again, what the challenges are that they're facing. Um, secondly is um, keep them positive. One of one of the things I think great leaders do, one of the things I encourage and I, what I teach in my programs is is to recognize effort 
and reward results. Too often we wait till the results come in to even recognize somebody, what they've done and what their accomplishments are. So just recognize, you know, the efforts that they're making to keep them motivated, uh, to help them, on, you know, keep them positive, recognize the efforts, and then when those results come in, uh, reward those efforts. And then I think the third thing, Denise, and it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, I think successful marketing and successful selling hasn't changed. The, the, to me, the, the number one thing to be successful in marketing and successful in sales is that TLC, is to be able to think like customers, to think like what are the customer problems, what, what, are, their, what are their needs, what are their, what are their objections, what are their hurdles, and to work with them, you know, kind of what we used to call consultative selling, is to work with the, the prospects and to work with them to understand how our solutions will benefit them. And, and always keep going back to those selling benefits. One of the things I've noticed, people selling to me these days, I get so many sales solicitations, and they're all based on features or all based on we do this, we do this. You know, you know I, how many people – I must get 10 emails a, a week from people who want to uh, help me build my next website or something. You know, we build these websites. We build mobile apps. We, we, we do social media. Yeah, 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 that's all function. What's the benefit? What, if you can tell me how you're going to save me time, if you can tell me how I'm going to make more money selling my online programs, if you can tell me how I'm going to build better relationships with my customers, now I'll talk to you. Those are the benefits that I need. Don't just tell me what the solutions are, what you do. That's not selling. I hope that makes sense. Uh, inter- interesting. You know, and that's a good takeaway for, um, you know, think like the customer, TLC, and then don't focus just on – and I've heard – I've heard that. I've heard both ways, focusing on the features and then focusing on how this benefits the the uh, the, pro- the prospect, the, poten- the person you're trying to, uh, you know, help become a new customer or build a, build a new relationship with, to focus on the benefits. So you ask them what are the, what are some of their life challenges, and then oh, and this is what this does, and this could help you get more time. This could help you with this or that. Um, I've heard it both ways, but the solution way is the one I've heard is the most effective. Now, you, we spoke a little bit about the uh, – you've got this training program. You're getting ready to launch, and come and it's an eight-week, uh, like a video module, and then for two years people stay in the program, and they can contact you for questions, and you're going to keep it to about 30, 35 people in a group. But uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your – and help me pronounce this, Caliente Leadership. I <laughs> love it. Yeah. Yes. It's Caliente leadership. Caliente, as you, as you people may know, is Spanish for hot. But the second ah. definition of Cali, the second definition of Caliente is passionate. Like a conversation Caliente is a passionate conversation, kind of like what you and I are having. So Caliente leadership, I'm passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about leadership development. Also, I live in the area I live in, Southern California. The land I live on is owned by the Agua Caliente Band of Indians, Agua being water, so the hot water or hot sea. So Agua Caliente Band of Indians owns the land, and it's kind of my tribute to our Native American landowners um, as well. So that's Caliente leadership. Caliente leadership. So when and why did you found, after all your years of experience working in the corporate world, some something some shift where you said you know what i'm getting out of the corporate world i'm going to do this on my own and offer these services through my own company when and why did you found caliente leadership 
I founded it just over seven years ago. I moved back to the United States. I was living in Australia at the time. My dad started having some um, uh, health issues. I came back for what I thought would be six weeks. It turned into six months. Uh, then I realized he, he had more problems than, than I would realize, and so I stayed on. So I, I physically moved myself back to the United States. And that's when I transitioned, when I was doing marketing in, in Australia and Asia, marketing consultancy. But, you know, I didn't have a, a business network here in the United States to build up to do marketing consultancy, and I really didn't know the U.S. market that well. I mean, I, at that point, I'd lived overseas for 33 consecutive years, and I knew the Asian markets, I knew the Australian market, I knew the international markets, but I really didn't know the U.S. market. And so I decided, you know, my, my experience was in leadership, in leadership training and leadership development. So I, I and that's when I created uh, Caliante. When I, when, I, when I realized that Caliante meant passionate, I just, I just locked into that. Because the other thing, you know, we talked about earlier about marketing and sales, I think the fourth component is having a strong brand. And if you have a strong brand with a story behind that brand, it's something people can relate to. It's, it's something people find memorable. And so, um, you know, I want people to realize that, you know, when they, when they associate my name, I want them to associate that this person is, he's a passionate guy. He's passionate about his books. He's passionate about leadership development. He's passionate about helping leadership well-being. Um, and as a, as a side note, Denise, I also created a company called Caliente Press where I, where I help people um, publish their books. And so Caliente, but I only work with passionate authors. So it's the same thing if you're passionate, only nonfiction authors as well. So if you're passionate about professional development, if you're passionate about self-development or personal development, then I will help you get your book to market through editing, through pre-publication, through setting up your Amazon accounts, uh, your ISBNs, all that kind of stuff that you and I know as authors of how to get your book into marketplace. So I, I only work with passionate people, and uh, that's, that's why I created Caliente Leadership. It's just about seven Interesting. years Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Now you told us about this new eight uh, eight video training module, but what other services does Caliente Leadership offer? Well, we we um, up until up until February this year, we offered a lot of classroom training services. But um, I, I've always I've, I've done virtual learning uh, for probably the last um, at least seven years. I've got a great experience doing virtual. I, I do a lot of virtual training programs as well. So you know, they, and you know, they could be you know over you know one module every uh, of the week for ten weeks or something like that. For these are more for corporation. Um, so I've got a series of virtual training modules or virtual training programs that I do for corporations right now. Uh, and I also do one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I, uh, you know, hour-long coaching sessions with people to develop their, their leadership skills or for me just to be a sounding board for them. And, and for those people who, who buy the online video program, they will get a 25% discount on my coaching services. So after they've gone through the eight programs, and and it's not eight weeks. I mean, they can if they watch two videos a week, they could do it over four weeks. They could learn the skills in in, in a month effectively, and then they still get the group coaching. But if they want the one-on-one -on -one personalized coaching opportunities, uh, they'll get a 25% discount on the first 10 sessions as well. So those are my core products. I also um, um, have a a leadership well-being assessment survey. Uh, that I am um, licensed to use, and so I people do that, and then I give them a there's a 90 minute debrief, and it talks about where you are at this point in your life in terms of six aspects of well-being, both professionally and personally. And then you know, you know, well-being is a very dynamic thing. You know, it depends what happened in our life. Our well-being can increase or it can 
go down. But it, a lot of our well-being is based on habits. So I'll talk to people about building better habits to, so that they have overall well-being. And by well-being, I'm not talking about the absence of illness or the absence of health. I'm really, to me, well-being is all about thriving and flourishing across as, as many aspects of your life as you can have. And so we talk about how, you know, if you, how do you leverage your strengths? Where are you doing really well? Where are you thriving? Where are you flourishing? And then where do you have some gap areas? How can you leverage your strengths? And how can you make some different changes to thrive and flourish in that particular area of your life? So those are, those are the range of services I provide. And that one-on-one coaching, that could be an existing leader or somebody who I know uh, I've worked with corporations where they offer executive coaching for somebody who's maybe been in a leadership role for a while, but they their employees might be complaining about their style or something's just not working. So you, so that's a good service uh, for any leader. You know, those co- executive coachings are expensive, but that one-on-one training that you offer with your 38 years of experience could be proved beneficial and valuable. Now, what have readers, what type of feedback have you been getting, Stephen? What have readers been saying about better decisions, better thinking, better decisions, better outcomes? What have readers been saying about the book? Well, fortunately, uh, a lot of praise. Uh, the book's won a couple of national awards as well. It got an award from um, the um, Nonfiction um, Authors Association and also got an award from the Independent Business Press um, Association. Uh, but individually, readers just saying, you know, that they're, they love the, the different um, – being educated on the different brain myths. Uh, they love the, the mindfulness techniques that you asked me about earlier. I, I, I shared three with your listeners. I think there's like uh, 24 of them in the book. Uh, on for work and then about another 20 or so for in, that you can use in your personal life. So they love these little, you know, tips, you know, very practical, how to use this, uh, how to implement this stuff. Uh, I, I explain, uh, I think six different breathing techniques uh, with your listeners. I shared box breathing, but there's others such as one's called four, seven, eight, one's called square breathing, you know, they actually give you actual steps in the book on how to do these different breathing techniques. And people are amazed at that, that, you know, Hey, breathing, why do we have to think about breathing? We all breathe, but most of us don't breathe properly. We breathe shallowly. Mm. We, uh, we breathe through our mouth rather than through our nose. Uh, we don't exhale. Uh, we don't use our breathing to calm us down as well as we could. And so, yeah, the, the practicality of the book is what people love. It's not, it's not a book on theory. It's not a book about the brain, although there's, there's, you know, there's a chapter about how the brain works, how the brain works when you're making a decision. Uh, there's a chapter about how the brain and the body communicate during stress. Um, you know the different chemicals that get secreted, but it's not a it's not a scientific book. Look, I'm a I'm a I'm a liberal arts major. I, my last science class was biology in high school. Okay, so it's it's a really straightforward book. You don't have to have a a medical degree to read it. Okay, okay. Now I, I you know sell ebooks. That's a good way to build get build brand, introduce people to your brand. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us like the process? Uh, with with just about six minutes left in the show, what's the process that you follow? Twenty one books for somebody who might want to bring out a book to to introduce their brand, to introduce themselves to uh, potential customers. How, what is the process that you follow to actually create uh, a nonfiction book? And about how long does it take you to create a new book? Okay, thank you. Um, I think the process is almost the marketing process. Instead of thinking like a customer, it, it's like have the reader in mind. When I write, 
I have a specific audience in mind. And sometimes it's one person. Sometimes I literally think I'm writing to so-and-so. Or sometimes I'm writing to, like in this case, I'm writing to leaders. And when we talk about leaders, I'm not talking about CEOs and C-suites and vice presidents. Anybody can be a leader. A supervisor of a team is a leader. So, so this, all these books are aimed at everybody who has a leadership responsibility, not the title of executive or something. Even my leadership coaching, as you mentioned, is for people who uh, are new leaders. So I think having that audience in mind when you write is critical. Um, the next tech technique I say is um, I think think of four your four key themes of your book, and then for each one of those four, think of four or five main points. And again, I'm talking nonfiction that you want to make. So if you have four key themes and four key points, each of those key points is a chapter, that's a 16-chapter book. And that's a pretty good way to start your outline. Um, you know, you might have five, you might have 18, or maybe even 20 chapters. That's okay. And then as you write, you may combine chapters, you may add a chapter. But just to get yourself focused, think about a four-by-four four matrix or four by something matrix, so four key messages that you want to deliver, and then four or five key points that support each of those messages. Now you've got the, the start of an outline. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You broke that down. You broke that out uh, very well for our listeners. And, and with somebody with this much marketing experience for off the shelf listeners, before you go, can you share three to four steps that you take that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your books? Uh, yeah, have, have uh, use your social media. You build up your network of social media, and but be constant. I mean, successful marketing. Nobody runs one ad and sells a car. Nobody runs one ad and sells a TV set, or, or runs five ads, or sends out five messages. So be consistent. Be consistent with your messages. Keep promoting your book. Um, speak out. Go on radio programs like yourselves. Uh, you know, find audiences that don't know you. Um, if you're, in my case, a business professional writing to business people, I write articles on LinkedIn, uh, usually one a month, and I publish those articles. And they, and I, in those articles, I often reference the book, or there'll be a link to the book on Amazon. But you just have to just keep getting your message out, be consistent with your message, and um, people will find you, uh, and you'll build up the audience that you need. But on the hand, let, let's be honest: very few people become successful authors, I think, financially at least in terms of writing nonfiction books. So one of the things when I work with an author is first question is what is the purpose of your book? Is it to build a brand so you get speaking engagement? Is it to build credibility so you can do training programs? Or are you trying to make a financial gain out? Are you trying to retire on it? The last one, in honesty, is very, very difficult. Unless you get lucky, you hit that tipping point, you know, chicken soup for the soul type book, wonderful. But there's very few examples of that out in the world. And he had so he was so smart with that though he had he had so many other writers who contributed to those books and of course they're going to tell their family and friends hey I'm in the chicken soup so that that I mean he just got built an army of people to help promote his brand by just including them in the book and so that was like well genius now can you can you can you tell us where off-the-shelf listeners can get a copy of your books? All my books are on Amazon and only on Amazon. Um, uh, you know, they're the Goliath in the marketplace. They're in both um, print version and Kindle versions. Um, so <clears throat> just go there, look under Stephen Howard, or best look under Better Decisions, Better Thinking, Better Outcomes, or the newest book, which is this kind of a spinoff from that book. Is um, this, is this is one for everybody, not just leaders. It's called 
how stress and anxiety impact your decision-making. So it takes a lot of the components from the book we've been talking about, but puts it in more personal terminology, makes it more of a personal use. So how stress and anxiety impact your decision-making. And I kept that price really low. I think it's under $14 because uh, I want people to read it. In this world we live in today with the pandemic, stress is increasing, anxiety is increasing. So this is my contribution to people to help them, help them understand how to control that stress, how to control that anxiety. Um, and that's why I kept the book under $15. Oh, well, thank you. Can you give us the title again? I definitely want to, to, to push that book, the, the title again, Great. please. It's How Stress and Anxiety impact your decision making so i took all the leadership stuff out i took all the brain myth stuff out i just focus on the individual reader it's uh it's only about 150 pages i think uh, 160 pages and straightforward simple talk but it will really help people particularly in today's world understand because prolonged stress is really bad for our brain and we're all going through prolonged stress so i purposely want this message to get out to help people control that stress because right now we're seeing you know, increased alcohol abuse, increased binge eating, and increased domestic abuse the longer this lockdown continues. And that's because our brains can't handle the stress and people can't handle, they can't regulate and control their emotions. So this book will help them do that. Again, a lot of simple techniques, straightforward techniques to, to use to get your stress under control, control your anxiety. Wow, how stress and anxiety impact our decision-making. And, and it is timely and then i've heard drug issues and those, those types of things are going up wow we have to learn how to manage our lives better if one thing about COVID 19 maybe has come through we maybe had so many other tools and to mask issues because some of the problems i'm hearing about i think we're already there and we were just doing things to mask them we have to learn better ways to manage it so how stress and anxiety impacts that is so, 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 so important. Thank you, Stephen Howard, for being here with us. Caliente Leadership, you guys. C-A-L-I-E-N-T-E-L-E-A-D-E-R-S-H-I-P.com. Please visit Stephen Howard online. And if he would just one more time give us the title of that latest book, How Stress and Anxiety Impact your decision making how stress and anxiety impact your present your sorry impact your decision making and denise i just want to say it was a pleasure i love your passion you're the kind of person i like to work with the kind of person i want to talk with so i love the way you bring passion to your program so what a wonderful experience for saturday morning Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you for taking time out of your day to be here with us here on Off the Shelf. And to our Off the Shelf listeners, as I always tell you, you are incredible. You are fabulous. You are amazing. Go out and create a great day for yourself today. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Stephen, I'll shoot you an email when the show finishes streaming. Thank you again so much. Bye for now. Thank you.